This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 18th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Trade and freedom of movement are keys to human progress. So why have the two leading candidates for president gotten so far on putting restrictions on the institutions that have lifted so many millions out of poverty? Cato Institute senior fellow Johan Norberg is author of the new book, Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. We spoke last week. Before we started recording here, you said that uh, once upon a time, uh, and I presume it wasn't that long ago, you thought of the United States as the great haven for escape, uh, given all the troubles in Europe, and now you're not so sure. Yeah, I used to uh, always consider the U.S. as some sort of reservoir of freedom. If we mess things up badly in Europe and other parts of the world, this is the place where we can all go and or at least have hope that this progress will continue here. Now, it's almost the opposite, uh, the other way around. Um, when I look at the uh, kind of election season you have, when I look at Hillary Clinton, this kind of statist, interventionist uh, attitude, which seems like the worst person in the world to have that kind of office, except one, Donald Trump, who seems almost worse than that. All right. So uh, in their particular policy prescriptions, of course, these people don't exist in a vacuum, right? They are candidates uh, or leading candidates for president because they have a group of people that like what they're saying about trade, about immigration, about uh, the United States having military adventures around the world. Uh, so what what bothers you the most about what you're hearing about the kinds of things that, according to you and your new book, uh, Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, uh, would argue are you know the mainsprings of human progress? Yeah, I think that pessimism is a very potent political force. If people are convinced that the, the world is falling apart, that uh, people left to their own devices, they'll only create chaos, then there will be a demand for very sort of powerful, strong men or strong women who'll solve all their problems, a big government that'll take care of us in exchange for our liberties. And we have that discussion in Europe, but in, in the US as well. Um, so a recent poll with 6% of, of Americans saying that the world is becoming a better place overall. In the era when we've done the most to eradicate poverty, to solve the problem of world hunger, where we've actually seen much less uh, violence and war and, and problems than ever. So that kind of pessimistic um, uh, discussion, the, uh, the thought that people have that everything is falling apart and we need someone strong to deal with that, that worries me a lot. So taking those uh, concerns at, at face value, what would you advocate with respect to, what would you tell the people who are supporting those two candidates about things like trade and immigration? Well, I'd try to sit down and calmly go through the data because it's not enough to look at the headlines and the breaking news stories because we always focus on the most shocking and bizarre accidents and, and, and stories around the world. Um, then you see that we've never seen the kind of progress that we've, we've seen recently. We've increased GDP per capita more around the world in the last 30 years than in the 30,000 years before. And trade has been uh, the most progressive factor when it comes to that. There are losses from trade. But uh, as a Peterson Institute recently showed, uh, the gains and losses, it's a 20 to 1 ratio for the American economy. So many more jobs are created, uh, purchasing power is increased, and, and people lead better lives because of this openness. And f it gives me the impression that people think that the 
the glass is not half full. Um, it's less than half empty. And because they're angry because it's not more full, they want to break the glass. I, I like to tell people that trade as a as a big concept is the source of 99.99% of the wealth that you enjoy uh, in your daily life. And it's it just seems so – it seems very obvious to me that that is the case. I didn't make any of the stuff we're using to record here. And uh, if I were put to my own devices, I would be dead. I would die very quickly from starvation. That's right. I mean trade is like a machine in which you put the things that you can do. Uh, perhaps you're great at doing podcasts and you put that into the machine or write books. You put that into the machine or you produce particular crops. You put that into the machine and from the other side, you get the things that you want and need and cannot produce. Uh, a computer, furniture or international travel or anything like that. That kind of machine sounds like a miracle but that's really what trade is. So why are we afraid of it? Well, because – um, it's if someone is even better at producing something and putting it into the machine, then we have to find something else to put into the machine. So there are some concentrated losses for those who produce the worst. And, and that's always – that always hurts. But that's the way we create progress, by stopping doing old things in old ways and then doing new things in new and better ways. All right. So with respect to immigration, that's really the other side of the trade coin. It's bringing – Power. It's bringing that knowledge to where it could be best used. And both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have said that they want to put some pretty strict limits on that. Yeah. It's really a way of getting more hands into our economy and more brains uh, and, and eyeballs that look at our problems and solves it with their creativity, their cultural background, which might differ from us. And all studies shows that that's a good thing because it gives us more experiments. It gives us a more diversity in approaches to create business models and, and uh, solve problems. It's not a coincidence that most of the Silicon Valley companies that now sort of carries our economy forth have been created by immigrants in the first or second generation. Um, so it's, it's incredibly beneficial. Um, but at the same time, I think that people feel threatened um, because they think that it changes the culture. Um, it changes uh, their lifestyle in a way. And, and obviously, our culture and our lifestyles are always changing. It's not a museum. It's not something that's intact. It's constantly changing due to influences from other places. And uh, But no one talks about those the benefits of, of avoiding stagnation to that extent. In the United States, we have historically low crime rates and uh, yet uh, supporters of certain candidates for president believe that problem is actually worse, among other problems. And it, it's almost a psychological programming uh, that we're just going to feel really bad about something and this is the thing we're going to feel bad about. It seems like a lot of people think that violence is spiraling out of control, which is so strange since homicide rates and uh, rates of violent crime has been halved since 1980. Um, so it seems like there's some other factor at work. Obviously, some politicians benefit from making us scared because then we were more willing to give up our liberties in exchange for security. But I also think that this is partly a media phenomena. There was a classic study from, I think, Baltimore, which showed that people who followed the uh, news on television, they 
thought they overestimated the extent of violent crime in the city. Most interestingly, they overestimated the extent of it in all the areas where they weren't on a daily basis. And that was the case in those areas as well. Everybody thought that crime was high somewhere else because you have first-hand knowledge of the place where you live and you see that violent crime is not an everyday occurrence. But the other places you only hear from through the media. And the media obviously does its work and look at the horrifying, shocking things that happens. Now we have global media. Now we have social media. Suffering and crime is not new, but cell phone cameras, they are new. So whatever happens, someone is there looking at it and shares it with the rest of the world. And then we get this impression uh, that this is increasing and that really benefits some of the most populist uh, political forces around. Some uh, talk radio people that I've heard criticizing uh, comparisons between American standards of living and uh, the, the rising living standards of people in other countries, pe- countries that are, are generally have much lower per capita incomes. And they view that, that, they view that uh, as an inappropriate comparison and the reason that I don't, I'm not, I'm trying to understand what that, what the specific reason is. But there is, I think, this presumption that well, we are not a third world country. The United States is a first world country, and we expect certain things. And so it's unfair or inappropriate to say, well, you know, living standards for all these people around the world are going up. And I guess to some extent, I understand that. I'm more worried about me than I am you. And I'm more worried about uh, my family than I am other families. Yeah. And you obviously should expect more if, you, um, if you're used to that kind of progress. The risk is then that we take progress for granted. And we never, we do not understand that the level that we're at takes a lot of hard work. And it takes a lot of innovative um, business models and technologies to make that happen all the time. So if you're just um, sort of depressed over the state of things and just want to smash the situation, our free trade-oriented free market system, well, then you'll ruin those uh, levels of of that living standard. But I think that a lot of people miss uh, what has gone on in in the Western world as well, the tremendous progress that we're making, partly because we look too much at just wages. Um, and they haven't risen as fast as we want. And I think that's because our economy hasn't expanded as much. And yet low and middle income households in in uh, the US has uh, on uh, the median income has increased by 30% since 1970. But more than that, purchasing power has increased much, much more because of trade and because of technological innovation. So since that early 1970, what we've got is a lot of other things. Uh, medical technologies that has given us another 10 years of life expectancy, uh, green technologies that makes our air cleaner, um, and any kind of technology from um, cell phones to the internet that has revolutionized our, our lifestyle. Um, but obviously, we take it for granted uh, now that we have it. And he that has satisfied his thirst turns his back to the well. And yes, turns his back to the well. That's really where I was going with this is that it is easy in taking for granted your standard of living. It is easy to forget what contributes to it. And and so if you had a message for people, if you if you're if you're going to act politically in a certain way and in this direction, 
you need to be careful not to throw away what? Progress is dependent on certain factors. It's not automatic. It depends on our freedom to explore, to come up with new knowledge, and to experiment with that knowledge in, in new technologies and new business models, and also to exchange the result of this. And now, this present uh, attack on, on the free market from the left and the right and against free trade seems to suggest that we could somehow keep these living standards, avoid any kind of competition, and still rise further. That's impossible. If you look at, at one recent study showed that um, the ones who would be hurt the most, they are the poorest households because they consume more of, um, of goods from other countries, whereas the richest, they consume more of uh, the um, local services. So the richest 10% of American households would lose less than 10% of their purchasing power without international trade. The poorest households would lose more than 60% of their income. So it's really poison, this, this whole anti-globalization campaign from the left and the right. Johan Norberg is author of Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. We spoke following a forum for the book held last week. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.